we're really working now on like the socio-emotional well-being of girls. And it's not enough to just inspire them, but how can we have a really truly deep relationship with girls um, and help them on their journey to becoming the most incredible human beings that they can become? Welcome back to Paths to Purpose. Thanks again for joining us. This week, we have another exciting guest. But before we get started, we thought we would take a couple seconds to kind of reflect on the learnings that we had from Abdullahi. Yeah, I thought it was a fascinating discussion. I think one of the things that it reflect it made me reflect on was its tie back to our episode one, where we were discussing legacy. And I think one of the things I took away was he was thinking a little bit in terms of a legacy of his work, where he doesn't necessarily need to see direct impact now. It's sort of a thought process or, or an idea that's going to survive him. Yeah. I think that reminded me of an experience I had when I was in college, I was a part of a leadership group and they took us to a cemetery and we walked around and they said, go read all these different headstones. And then we came back together and they said, what, what do you want your headstone to read? What do you want your life to be about? And that's something that at the time I didn't realize would stick with me. And I thought he encapsulated that in a much more eloquent way than I just did, but I really connected with that as well. And with that, we are going to get started with our guest this week. This week, we are joined by Jess Wolf. Jess is currently the CEO of Rebel Girls, the girl-driven edutainment company that brings inspiring stories of global women leaders to books, podcasts, toys, and digital media, including my favorite book series, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Jess's prior experience as an angel investor and startup advisor, chief operating officer of a technology media company, strategic consultant, and investment finance and banking analyst, and she earned her MBA at Stanford and holds a degree in economics and political science from the University of California at Berkeley. Jess, welcome to Paths to Purpose, and thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Let's maybe start by discussing kind of what you do currently and your path to getting there. Sure. I am currently the CEO of Rebel Girls. We are on a mission to help raise the most inspired and the most confident global generation of girls today. We want to help girls be the stars of their own story and our ask to them is for them to be the heroes of tomorrow and for the next generation. And I have a lot of fun doing that. And we're doing that through a predominantly telling stories. And now we're expanding into the technology realm and we'll be connecting girls and bringing community and badassness to all that we do. I love that. Um, so how did you end up at Rebel Girls? Like what was your path to getting there? Long, windy road. I started out in business uh, for a good decade, learning how things worked, getting some skills some experience, lots of that. Uh, switched over to operations about, oh, eight years ago. That was really what I wanted to do was to build companies and to take risks and to be able to point at something at the end of the night and say, I helped build that. I felt that the first decade I built a lot of Excel models and PowerPoint presentations and it just wasn't as satisfying. So Switched over to an operating role about eight years ago and then found my way in the startup world six years ago. And that was really where it clicked and where the magic was. 
And this particular role was actually, uh, it happened during a break. So after my last startup, I moved to the mountains. I got River the dog, who is my loyal companion and became a ski bum and took some time out to just think about what I really wanted my next chapter to look like and what I wanted to achieve in life, knowing that that could be a one to 50 more years and what were the boxes that I wanted to check. And so those three boxes I decided were, um, I want to have a family. I want to take my personal development as far as I can. And I want to leave the world a better place than I found it. And so to do that, I hosted um, a number of different founders in, in the mountains. And we'd have these three-day strategy sessions. And we'd go skiing and we would talk about life in the world and their companies and what problems they were solving and how they saw, you know, the future of their businesses unfolding. And uh, one of the people who came through and did kind of strategy ski camp boot camp workshop with me uh, was one of the founders of Rebel Girls. And she's an incredibly creative person and had come up with the original idea and put it on Kickstarter and self-published the book and, and wrote it and it grew and kind of was at an inflection point. And I fell in love with the concept and the company and the potential. And that kind of ended my retirement pretty quickly. And so <laughs> I, uh, I joined her on the journey and uh, haven't looked back since. I just want to put in the side for all the listeners, if they haven't picked up the book yet, I've given this book to many young women and to many moms, because I remember when it came out and I was like, this is the best idea I've ever seen just because of what was fundamentally missing from the market at the time. I have so many questions, Jess. Thanks for joining us. It's been a long time since we've spoken when you were in my class at the GSB. So I, I guess one of my questions about this is a lot of our listeners struggle with risk and your startup community is full of risks. How do you how do you wrestle with that when you're thinking about in terms of engaging projects? Yeah, I think what I found is that everyone has a different level of risk appetite. And you kind of, I think it's best to operate within knowing, you got to know what your own risk appetite is and then operate within that. And some people are pretty risk averse and that's okay. It, those people, I think, have more anxiety with risk-taking. I tend to not be very risk-adverse. I've uh, started over like so many times in my life, starting at a young age, and uh, it doesn't scare me. And failure doesn't scare me, really. And so I think for me, risk-taking is actually pretty fun. It, it really challenges me in a way that I like to be challenged. Uh, I kind of have this mantra where I'm like, all right, like, what are the most important things? And I'm like, all right, I got to stay alive. I think you told me this, Alan, way back when you got to keep your brain alive. Like, don't hurt your head, like wear a helmet, like, don't, you know, and, uh, and then if I can, like, now I'm like, okay, I got to keep my dog alive and I got to keep my company alive. And if I'm having fun, like I'm winning. And, and those are kind of the like things that matter and everything else figures itself out. As long as, you know, I'm still going, I think my, my mom, my mom had a pretty funny moment with me. Um, six, seven years ago, I had moved to Australia and I was just everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I was kind of in the like fetal position under the bed, like calling home 
I mean, like, mom, and this happened and this happened. She's like, honey, you're still alive. You're doing great. Like, keep going. So, you know, that, that's kind of my philosophy on risk-taking is like, it's part of life. It's something I enjoy. Sometimes it's scary, but that's okay. There's a lot of learning. And as long as you can still get up the next morning and keep walking, you're doing all right. Well, just to follow up on that, one of the things I find really compelling about the story you just gave, though, with respect to entering Rebel Girls was it seems as though the excitement of the project kind of pulled you out of any kind of anxiety. And I've, I've found that in some of the engagements I've done with myself and with other people. I, I believe in, in following passions. And, and this was something that was worth doing. And nothing else really mattered. So, yeah, just kind of going off of that. I think that's kind of the whole ethos of what we're doing here is getting people to think more about like, yeah, what, what do you care about and how can you kind of bring that into your career? Did you always have that in your mindset when you were approaching jobs, like from, you know, the beginning of when you were starting out to now, or how has that changed? Nope. (laughs) It has changed a huge amount. When I was in college, I really wanted a job. Like I was like, oh my gosh, I need a job. And there was a moment of panic Uh, I was a political science major. Uh, I finished the summer, you know, of my junior year. I had been planning to go work on John Kerry's campaign after college. I realized that I'd probably have to live out of my car and get paid $20,000 a year. And I was like, that's, that's actually not what I want to (laughs) do. And so I was like, I I need a real job. And I realized I was qualified for nothing. And so (laughs) My, my roommate was a Haas student, which is the business school at Berkeley at the time. And she said, well, how about you come to this thing called a career fair? And there's a bunch of companies and they come and they present and you can like see what's out there. I said, okay, great. I said, okay, we should probably dye your hair back a normal color and buy you a suit. <laughs> I think I was a <laughs> hair model at the time and I had like blonde and red and black and like all sorts of stuff. So we like dyed my hair brown and then we bought a like gray suit at the gap. And, um, and I went to this career fair and basically just like followed everybody around and saw these business school kids and they all wanted these jobs in consulting and in banking. And so I had no idea what consulting or banking was like, I grew up in this tiny town in Oregon on a farm. No one in my family was in business. No one in my town was in business. Like I really didn't know what any of this was, but I saw these people who like knew something and they wanted these jobs. And so I was like, okay, I, I should want that job too. And so started a very, very difficult process of interview. I think I interviewed for 150 interviews before getting a job at Morgan Stanley. And, and I was pretty lucky in, in the people that helped me in along the way to get there and figuring out, okay, I need a degree in economics. So I had to do a degree in economics in two semesters and uh, took yeah, micro, macro, econometric all at the same time, like, you know, and, uh, and then while interviewing for all these jobs and, and got, got one at the end and was pretty stoked. And I had no idea what it was or what I was going to do, but they were going to pay me $55,000 a year. And it was a, name of a company that people cared about. And so it was a path and that's how, that's how I got my start. And so the, the purpose for me then was like, get a job, learn some skills. 
And it was great because that's what I did. I learned some skills. I learned a lot of skills and it turned out that I really liked some of what I was doing and it was really interesting. And it opened up a world to me that I didn't know existed. And it opened a lot of doors um, and those doors opened other doors, which opened other doors. And so I, I have very like fond memories, not of all the, you know, all nighters and, and whatnot, but I learned so much and it, allowed me to do a bunch of things. So I was pretty grateful to, to get that job, which then changed my life and, and, you know, worked in that industry slash industry slash adjacent for a good decade until I was really ready to do my own thing. And I found when I was in banking and consulting and investing all that, that the thing that was missing for me was, was the risk-taking where I gave advice to people and to operators and to entrepreneurs and to business leaders of what they should do, but they got to make the decisions and they got to take the risks and they got to build it and they got to build the team. And I was super jealous. You know, I was like, here's what I think you should do. And maybe they did it, maybe they didn't, but ultimately they got to make those decisions. And I, the more in this advisory work I did, the more I realized, like, I want to make those decisions. I want to take risks. I want to build something. I want to be able to point to something. And so that that took a decade to get there to really be like, this is what I want. And then, then I became an operator. And that's what I've done for the last eight years. That's a cool story. And I know your backstory even prior to that is really, really fascinating on top of this. One question I have, though, based on what I heard, do you, do you think it would help as somebody who's looking now to mentor those behind you in particularly younger generation women, do you think it would help to actually have more clarity going into that path? Cause that path ended up being fortunate for you, but it that wasn't necessarily the right path going in. I think the more intentionality anyone can have, the more they'll get out of life. So I think being intentional is a great skill set that I learned much, much later in life, knowing what you want or even what you don't want is really good. I think, I think it's also okay to experiment with a bunch of things to figure out what you want and what you don't want. I don't think life is so linear that you can plan every step, but I think having some hypotheses about what interests you or doesn't interest you, and then being able to have experiences that validate um, or not, those hypotheses can like help to get to that answer faster than maybe it took me to get to that answer. I think one thing that's resonating with me off of what you just said reminds me of my, like going into my first job out of my master's and it was like a really cool company and I was really excited. And I had all this like energy just about being there and having that like name on my resume. My question is, did you ever feel that leaving that industry and pivoting into more startups was risky for you? Or did you ever have that, like, am I going to be making a mistake by leaving that security to be shifting into a new path? No, Uh, no. I mean, name brand stuff isn't what fuels me and it's not what gives me my identity. So just not part of my DNA. I love it. Um, So kind of going off of that same notion, one of the things that we talk a lot about with our guests is imposter syndrome. You know, you're currently leading this incredible company. Have you ever 
dealt with imposter syndrome in any of the roles that you've been in? And if you do kind of, how do you recognize it, deal with it? If you have any tools for, for younger people who may be experiencing that. Oh yeah. All the time. Uh, the first one, day one analyst training, Morgan Stanley, I said, didn't even know what investment banking was, uh, showed up in New York, 144 people in my class. And, uh, I had like gone to Nordstrom's to buy some like business clothes, but no one gave me the memo. So I show up, everybody has like the light blue long sleeve collared shirt, gray slacks, like black belt, black shoes. I'm like in like a lime green blouse with like black pants and like, whatever, you know, and I was like, Oh, I'm like, Oh my gosh. So all of a sudden I get, I get told I'm the colorful analyst like day one. And, and then, you know, I've never taken accounting in my life or, or any of this stuff. And just, it was 13 hours a day of training and being like, Oh my gosh, what have I gotten into? So that was like the first time that was like, Oh my gosh. Uh, but you know, like it met some friends who are friends to this day. They talked, sat down next to him. I was like, help. Okay, here you go. Here's how you, what we're doing. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, just showed up each day and each day did my best and learned and picked it up and came back the next day. And in the end, like I was actually a great investment making analyst and I really enjoyed it and learning all those things, those new things and that steep learning curve. So that was the first time I had imposter syndrome. I had tons of imposter syndrome as CEO. There are moments of real stress and huge problem solving that's needed strategic directional shifts and pivots and evolutions, people issues. Like, all, you know, I have tons of moments where I'm like, am I doing a good job? Do I know what I'm doing? Would someone else be doing a better job of this than me? It's, it totally happens. And I think the more, the higher the pressure, the bigger the stakes, the more you care, the more that's going on at the same time, the more often I have those thoughts of, do I really belong here? Do I know what I'm doing? And my tips and tricks for that is I kind of, first of all, like some days it's just like best to drink some wine and like go to bed. And then, uh, then usually I'll get up in the morning and I'll go for a run or I'll go for a bike ride or I'll go do something very physical, very active, very outdoors. That's where I do my best thinking, kind of clear my head. And then I like to focus on what am I good at? What do I know how to do? And I build up my confidence about telling myself like all the things that I do know how to do and I am good at and what are the successes I have had and whatnot. And then, um, and then I break down the problem into like the smallest possible steps. So if it's a giant problem, how do I break that into 10 little problems? And that makes it a lot less overwhelming. And then you solve the first little problem and the second little problem and then the third little problem. And then all of a sudden you've actually solved the big problem. And there's a saying I like, I love to climb mountains. And there's a saying, which is like to climb a mountain, you do it like one step at a time. And I think that's really true in life is like, you just one foot and then the next foot and then the next foot. And if you can break down kind of what's giving anxiety into this piece and then this piece and then this piece, then pretty soon, like you're at the top of the mountain. That's there's so much clarity there. I actually love that. And that's actually consistent with some of the stuff the work that we've been doing in this podcast. So one of the things actually that you, that you sort of touched on in your very first anecdote of in, imposter syndrome was 
your reliance on other people to help kind of in a collaborative because none of the work you're doing is done by yourself. So can you talk a little bit about how do you select people with whom you're going to work? Yeah. How do you build your team? Yeah. I try to find a lot of people who are way smarter than me with way better experience (laughs) in general. What do I look for? I, I look for people who are passionate. I look for people who are very competent. I look for people who work very hard and who care, who have an ownership mentality. I looked for people who can have some fun. Like it's a lot of work to like build a company. Like you want to have some fun and fun with the people you're working with. So ideally people don't take themselves too, too seriously. And uh, people have ideas. I love it when people come and they're like, okay, we've identified XYZ problem and here are four possible solutions. So solution oriented mindset growth-oriented mindset, the brains and the brawn to like back it, you know, that trust is a pretty big thing. And the ways I think, you know, trust takes a lot of time to build and it's hard to like figure out overnight. But the things I find that help trust is um, people can communicate well, who are direct, who um, can be vulnerable people that can actually share a bit about who they are and what their motivations are and what their values are. Like that's really helpful in like building trust. And that's a pretty big deal when you're at a startup. I think that's something that we've touched a lot on in trying to coach people into, you know, thinking about the careers that they want to go into. Trust is super core. Um, One of the things I'm hearing too in your story today is a lot of self-reflection on your part and just being really introspective and kind of mindful. Do you have a system? I've spent a lot of time thinking about what's gone right and what's gone wrong as long as I can remember. It's definitely easier for me to think about all those things when I'm outside and when I'm away from the computer and I'm away from the phone and I'm in nature. I've had some of my best thinking ever on a surfboard, watching the sunrise, kind of just being a part of nature. So getting off the grid, being outside, ideally doing something pretty physical and having the space and time to think is when I'm like, it most comes. So I was going to pivot a little bit to the social environment we're operating in now. I I sense a lot of tension socially and you're right. It, in the forefront of trying to make an impact on some of the social issues. Can you kind of color a little bit about how you view the the issues in gender specifically and what you think the kind of impact that you folks are trying to build there? Yeah. So by age six, in general, girls think that they're less smart and less capable than boys. And it starts at age six and then it grows from there. And so what we're really focused on is this confidence gap. And that's on a gender basis. But if you take any sort of intersectionality, it's so, so much worse. If you're female and black, if you're female and different level of ableness, if you come from a different kind of background, like it's the representation out there is pretty pathetic. And the tools and resources available to you to boost your confidence are just not what it is for every every kid. And I think that we're seeing what happens um, from a gender perspective and then an intersectional perspective of like when 
some kids grow up with a lot less confidence, thinking they're a lot less smart, a lot less capable then they aspire to less in life and then less happens, good happens to them in life. Right. And so we really want to change that starting with kids and give every, I mean, we're starting with girls, but like every girl, one, if not dozens of role models that she can see herself in that looks like her, that has speaks the same language, comes from the same background, has the same interests and has achieved so that, you know, if she can see it, she can be it. But then beyond that, we're really working now on like the socio-emotional well-being of girls. And it's not enough to just inspire them, but how can we have a really truly deep relationship with girls um, and help them on their journey to becoming the most incredible human beings that they can become? And so if, you, so if our content and our product offerings are really working, we're making this shift from, you know, we, we've told the stories of the past, the inspiration, and now we're really working on the stories of today, like who is doing things today and young ages and how making it very tangible. And then working with girls to tell the stories of tomorrow, the stories of them. And, and even as an eight-year-old, what are you doing and what do you want to do and who are you in life and how do you show up and what lights you up and how can we give girls activities so that they can actually do things to build their confidence and work on some of these other socio-emotional skills of empathy, of um, tenacity, you know, there, there's pieces that will help them be successful in life. And so that that's where we come at this. And I just think it's incredibly important so that we have a level playing field and the next generation can deal with different problems. There will always be problems. So let's have them deal with different problems and not the problems that kind of we dealt with. I just got chills. <laughs> um, I think I, yeah, I remember when your guys's first book came out and the Kickstarter and everything. And I was working in San Francisco at the time at a tech company there. And I was working with a colleague and he saw the book and he had two little girls and he was like, this is so important to me because I've been trying to figure out how to raise my daughters when, you know, I work for this company and it's a gaming company that's, you know, usually male centered. And I want to show them strong female leads that, you know, they can aspire to be and to just see the growth that you guys have had is so inspirational. I'm just really excited for the work that you guys do. We wanted to see if we could ask you a starter question, which is something that Alan used in the past um, on students like me and other people to kind of see what emotionally resonates. Um, do you mind if we try one out on you? Let's go. Okay, great. When was the last time you completely lost track of time because you were so immersed in a moment or an experience? What were you doing when, what was the environment like? Why do you think it drew you in so deeply? Okay. So this actually happens to me a lot. Uh, one of my superpowers in life is crazy focus. So when I have a task at hand, I can zone out the entire world for as long as it takes. And I can do this at work and I can do this in play. I remember Morgan Stanley having to build models and just 10 hours would go by and it would be me and my Excel sheet and like what I was building. And there was like nothing else happening. Uh, this happens to me this winter. I went backcountry skiing a lot with my dog and just was 
super into it and it was beautiful outside and we were having a great time and I felt really lucky to be alive and I was doing an activity that just matters so much to me and brings me so much joy. So yeah, I, I, I have a lot of those moments. Uh, that's, that's my superpower <laughs> that and pain tolerance. So I think one of the questions that I wanted to ask was just along the lines of how you've overall found purpose and kind of how you've had your journey. Do you have any tools that you've used influencers, things that you look to when you're looking for inspiration or guidance? I have a couple. There's one of those personality tests is the wrong word, but for lack of a better word, it's called strength finder. I think it's a really great tool for I've taken it at multiple times throughout my career. And the premise is, you know, play to your strengths, know what they are and play to your strengths instead of always trying to like work on your weaknesses. And you get at the end of this assessment, like your five biggest strengths and also environments where you'll thrive based on those strengths. Mine have come out startups and restructuring (laughs) is are like two places where my strengths help me thrive. So I think that's just a great practical tool for everybody. And it gives you a place to start and how to think about environments that and jobs where you're using your strengths, because then you can succeed and that builds more confidence and that opens more doors and all of that good stuff. So that's one practical tool. There's a book called Learning to Breathe by Alison Wright. And she is just my hero. And she was a, um, a a photojournalist that took, you know, in the nineties, like went all over the world, taking pictures, like in the Amazon first, like white person to have whatever ceremony with this and convert, you know, with the Dalai Lama and, and in Tibet as it's being stormed by China and like all, you know, just these crazy awesome adventures and inspirational living life to its maximum kind of person who had a pretty horrific accident in Laos in her late thirties and should have died like full on should have died. And the book is about her journey recovering and it goes in and out of the adventures in life and the flashbacks she has to a multi-year process of basically going from death back to life and then ultimately to like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro again for her 40th birthday and how it changed her and shaped her. And I I love her story because the adventure she went on and the risks she took and what she experienced is, is so vivid. And then the real, real that like life is random and sometimes really awful things happen that you can't control. And what you can control is your attitude. And, and she talks about sometimes during this process where all she could do is focus on one breath and then the next breath and then the next breath. And then, you know, coming to a place of ultimately deciding like what kind of life she wanted to live and, and what was important after that. So I think it's an awesome book, not about business whatsoever, but it's more philosophical about what's important in life and the twists and turns that life can take. But I highly recommend it. I'll definitely add that to my summer reading list. 
Before we wrap up today, I wanted to ask if there was anything you wanted to share with our listeners about where they can find you or Rebel Girls or any of your latest things that you guys are doing. Sure. You can find us at rebelgirls.com. You can buy our books on our site or anywhere you like to buy books. I am a big fan of our podcast, 20 minute fairy tale episodes about some of the most badass women there ever there was. And um, coming out next week will be a uh, bedtime audio app that really focuses on original stories of inspirational women. And it adds in socio-emotional well-being and affirmations and questions and reflections for girls. And that's our hope to help them create a really healthy and enriching nightly routine um, that helps them to dream bigger. So look out for the Rebel Girls Dream On app starting next week in the App Store. I love that so much. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story. I'm super inspired. I'm fangirling over here just over everything that you've done and also over your company. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. As per usual, if you have thoughts or feedback, or if you want to share this episode, our Instagram is at paths2purposepod or our email is paths2purposepod at gmail.com. Thank you, Jess, for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye.